If you're enjoying Send Me to Sleep, make sure that you've followed the podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and any other podcast player you use. Also, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All of this really helps the show reach new listeners. And you never know, your review may convince someone to listen and lead them to a good night's rest, which I hope you all agree is worth sharing. Thanks so much for your listenership and support. Good evening. Tonight, I'll be reading chapters 9 and 10 of A Journey to the Centre of the Earth by Jules Verne. So let your eyes fall heavy and your breath soften as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 10 Travelling in Iceland It ought, one would have thought, to have been night, even in the 65th parallel of latitude, but still the nocturnal illumination did not surprise me, for in Iceland, during the months of June and July, the sun never sets. The temperature, however, was very much lower than I expected. I was cold, but even that did not affect me so much as ravenous hunger. Welcome indeed, therefore, was the hut which hospitably opened its doors to us. It was merely the house of a peasant, but in the matter of hospitality, it was worthy of being the palace of a king. As we alighted at the door, the master of the house came forward, held out his hand, and without any further ceremony, signaled to us to follow him. We followed him, for to accompany him was impossible. A long, narrow, gloomy passage led into the interior of his habitation, made from beams roughly squared by the axe. This passage gave ingress to every room. The chambers were four in number, the kitchen, the workshop, where the weaving was carried on, the general sleeping chamber of the family, and the best room, to which strangers were especially invited. My uncle, whose lofty stature had not been taken into consideration when the house was built, contrived to knock his head against the beams of the roof. We were introduced into our chamber, a kind of large room with a hard earthen floor, and lighted by a window the panes of which were made of a sort of parchment from the intestines of sheep, very far from transparent. The bedding was composed of dry hay, thrown into two long red 
wooden boxes, ornamented with sentences painted in Icelandic. I really had no idea that we should be made so comfortable. There was one objection to the house, and that was the very powerful odour of dried fish, of macerant meat, and of sour milk, which three fragrances combined did not at all suit my olfactory nerves. As soon as we had freed ourselves from our heavy travelling costume, the voice of our host was heard calling us to come to the kitchen, the only room in which the Icelanders ever make any fire, no matter how cold it may be. My uncle, nothing loath, hastened to obey this hospitable and friendly invitation. I followed. The kitchen chimney was made of an antique model. A large stone standing in the middle of the room was the fireplace. Above, in the roof, was a hole for the smoke to pass through. This apartment was kitchen, parlour and dining room all in one. On our entrance... Our worthy host, as if he had not seen us before, advanced ceremoniously, uttered the word which means, be happy, and then kissed both of us on the cheek. His wife followed, pronounced the same word with the same ceremonial. Then the husband and wife, placing their right hands upon their hearts, bowed, profoundly. This excellent Icelandic woman was the mother of nineteen children, who, little and big, rolled, crawled, and walked about in the midst of volumes of smoke arising from the angular fireplace in the middle of the room. Every now and then I could see a fresh white head and a slightly melancholy expression of countenance peering at me through the vapour. Both my uncle and myself, however, were very friendly with the whole party, and before we were aware of it, there were three or four of these little ones on our shoulders, as many on our boxes, and the rest hanging about our legs. Those who could speak kept crying out Salvertu in every possible and impossible key. Those who did not speak only made all the more noise. This concert was interrupted by the announcement of supper. At this moment our worthy guide, the Eder Duck Hunter, came in after seeing to the feeding and stabling of the horses, which consisted in letting them loose to browse on the stunted green of the Icelandic prairies. There was little for them to eat but moss and some very dry and innutritious grass. Next day they were ready before the door, 
some time before we were. Welcome, said Hans. Then tranquilly, with the air of an automaton, without any more expression in one kiss than another, he embraced the host and hostess and their nineteen children. This ceremony concluded to the satisfaction of all parties. We all sat down to the table, that is twenty-four of us, somewhat crowded. Those who were best off had only two juveniles on their knees. As soon, however, as the inevitable soup was placed on the table, the natural taciturny, common even to Icelandic babies, prevailed over all else. Our hosts filled our plates with a portion of lichen soup of Iceland moss, of by no means disagreeable flavour, an enormous lump of fish floating in sour butter. After that there came the skyr, a kind of curds and whey, served with biscuits and juniper berry juice. To drink, we had blander, skimmed milk with water. I was hungry, so hungry, that by way of dessert, I finished up with a basin of thick oaten porridge. As soon as the meal was over, the children disappeared, whilst the grown people sat around the fireplace, on which was placed turf, heather, cow dung, and dried fish bones. As soon as everybody was sufficiently warm, a general dispersion took place, all retiring to their respective couches. Our hostess offered to pull off our stockings and trousers, according to the custom of the country, but we graciously declined to be so honoured. She left us to our bed of dry fodder. Next day, at five in the morning, we took our leave of these hospitable peasants. My uncle had great difficulty in making them accept a sufficient and proper remuneration. Hans then gave the signal to start. We had scarcely got a hundred yards from Gardar when the character of the country changed. The soil began to be marshy and boggy and less favourable to progress. To the right, the range of mountains was prolonged indefinitely like a great system of natural fortifications of which we skirted the place. We met with numerous streams and rivulets which it was necessary to ford, and that without wetting our baggage. As we advanced, the deserted appearance increased, and yet now and then we could see human shadows flitting in the distance. When a sudden turn of the track brought us within easy reach of one of these spectres, I felt a sudden impulse of disgust at the sight of a swollen head 
with shining skin, utterly without hair, and whose repulsive and revolting wounds could be seen through his rags. The unhappy wretches never came forward to beg. On the contrary, they ran away. Not so quick, however, but that Hans was able to salute them with the universal salivertu. Spetelsk, said he. A leper, explained my uncle. The very sound of such a word caused a feeling of repulsion. The horrible affliction known as leprosy, which has almost vanished before the effects of modern science, is common in Iceland. It is not contagious, but hereditary, so that marriage is strictly prohibited to these unfortunate creatures. These poor lepers did not tend to enliven our journey, the scene of which was inexpressibly sad and lonely. The very last tufts of grassy vegetation appeared to die at our feet. Not a tree was to be seen, except a few stunted willows about as big as a blackberry bush. Now and then we watched a falcon soaring in the grey and misty air, taking his flight towards warmer and sunnier regions. I could not help feeling a sense of melancholy come over me. I sighed for my own native land and wished to be back with Gretchen. We were compelled to cross several little fjords and at last came to a real gulf. The tide was at its height and we were able to go over at once and reach the hamlet of Alftenes about a mile further. That evening, after fording the Alpha and the Heta, two rivers rich in trout and pike, we were compelled to pass the night in a deserted house, worthy of being haunted by all the fays of Scandinavian mythology. The King of Cold had taken up his residence there, and made us feel his presence all night. The following day was remarkable by its lack of any particular incidents. Always the same damp and swampy soil, the same dreary uniformity, the same sad and monotonous aspects of scenery. In the evening, having accomplished the half of our project journey, we slept at the Annexia Crosbolt. For a whole mile we had under our feet nothing but lava. This disposition of the soil is called prawn. The crumbled lava on the surface was in some instances like ship cables, stretched out horizontally, in others coiled up in heaps, an immense field of lava came from the neighbouring mountains, 
all extinct volcanoes, but whose remains showed what once they had been. Here and there could be made out the steam from hot water springs. There was no time, however, for us to get taken more than a courtesy view of these phenomena. We had to go forward with what speed we might. Soon the soft and swampy soil again appeared under the feet of our horses, while at every hundred yards we came upon one or more small lakes. Our journey was now in a westerly direction. We had, in fact, swept round the great bay of Faxa, and the twin white summits of Sneffels rose to the clouds at a distance of less than five miles. The horses now advanced rapidly. The accidents and difficulties of the soil no longer checked them. I confess that fatigue began to tell severely upon me, but my uncle was as firm and as hard as he had been on the first day. I could not help admiring both the excellent professor and the worthy guide, for they appeared to regard this rugged expedition as a mere walk. On Saturday, the 20th of June, at six o'clock in the evening, we reached Budir, a small town picturesquely situated on the shore of the ocean, and here the guide asked for his money. My uncle settled with him immediately. It was now the family of Hans himself, that is to say, his uncles, his cousins, German, who offered us hospitality. We were exceedingly well received, and without taking too much advantage of the goodness of these worthy people, I should have liked very much to have rested with them after the fatigues of the journey. But my uncle, who did not require rest, had no idea of anything of the kind, and despite the fact that next day was Sunday, I was compelled once more to mount my steed. The soil was again affected by the neighborhood of the mountains, whose granite peered out of the ground like tops of an old oak. We were skirting the enormous base of the mighty volcano. My uncle never took his eyes from it. He could not keep from gesticulating and looking at it with a kind of sullen defiance, as much to say, that is the giant I have made up my mind to conquer. After four hours of steady travelling, The horses stopped of themselves before the door of the presbytery of Stappy. Chapter 11 We Reach Mount Sneffels, the Ray Kerr 
Stapi is a town consisting of thirty huts, built on a large plain of lava, exposed to the rays of the sun, reflecting from the volcano. It stretches its humble tenements along the end of a little fjord, surrounded by a balsatic wall of the most singular character. Basalt is a brown rock of igneous origin. It assumes regular forms, which astonish by their singular appearance. Here we found nature proceeding geometrically, and working quite after a human fashion, as if she had employed the plummet line, the compass and the rule. If elsewhere she produces grand artistic effects by piling up huge masses without order or connection, if elsewhere we see truncated cones, imperfect pyramids, with an odd succession of lines, here, as if wishing to give a lesson in regularity, and preceding the architects of the early ages, she has erected a severe order of architecture, which neither the splendors of Babylon nor the marvels of Greece ever surpassed. I had often heard of the giant's causeway in Ireland, and of Fingal's cave in one of the Hebrides, but the grand spectacle of a real basaltic formation had never yet come before my eyes. This in Stappy gave us an idea of one in all its wonderful beauty and grace. The wall of the fjord like nearly the whole of the peninsula, consisted of a series of vertical columns in height about thirty feet. These upright pillars of stone, of the finest proportions, supported an archivolt of horizontal columns which formed a kind of half-vaulted roof above the sea. At certain intervals, and below this natural basin, the eye was pleased and surprised with the sight of oval openings, through which the outward waves came thundering in, volleys of foam. Some banks of basalt, torn from their fastenings by the fury of the waves, lay scattered on the ground like the ruins of an ancient temple. Ruins eternally young, over which the storm of ages swept without producing any perceptible effect. This was the last stage of our journey. Hans had brought us along with the fidelity and intelligence, and I began to feel somewhat more comfortable when I reflected that he was to accompany us still farther on our way. When we halted before the house of the rector, a small and incommodious cabin, neither handsome nor comfortable than those of his neighbours, I saw a man in the act of shoeing a horse, a hammer in his hand, and a leathern apron 
tied round his waist. Be happy, said the Eder Down Hunter, using his national salutation in his own language. God dag, good day, replied the former, in excellent Danish. Kirahud, cried Hans, turning round and introducing him to my uncle. The rector, repeated the worthy professor. It appears, my dear Harry, that this worthy man is the rector, and is not above doing his own work. During the speaking of these words, the guide intimated to the Kiraherd what was the true state of the case. The good man, ceasing from his occupation, gave a kind of halloo, upon which a tall woman, almost a giantess, came out of the hut. She was at least six feet high, which in that region is something considerable. My first impression was one of horror. I thought she had come to give us the Icelandic kiss. I had, however, nothing to fear, for she did not even show much inclination to receive us into her house. The room devoted to strangers appeared to me to be far the worst in the presbytery. It was narrow, dirty, and offensive. There was, however, no choice about the matter. The rector had no notion of practicing the usual cordial and antique hospitality. Far from it. Before the day was over, I found we had to deal with a blacksmith, a fisherman, a hunter, a carpenter, anything but a clergyman. It must be said in his favour that we had caught him on a weekday. Probably he appeared to greater advantage on the Sunday. These poor priests receive from the Danish government a most ridiculously inadequate salary and collect one quarter of the thine of their parish, no more than sixty marks current, or about three pounds ten shillings sterling. Hence the necessity of working to live. In truth, we soon found that our host did not count civility among the cardinal virtues. My uncle soon became aware of the kind of man he had to deal with. Instead of a worthy and learned scholar, he found a dull, ill-mannered peasant. He therefore resolved to start on his great expedition as soon as possible. He did not care about fatigue and resolved to spend a few days in the mountains. The preparations for our departure were made the very next day after our arrival at Stapi. Hans now hired three Icelanders to take the place of the horses, which could no longer carry our luggage. When, however, these worthy Icelanders had reached the bottom of the crater, they were to go back and leave us to ourselves. 
this point was settled before they would agree to start. On this occasion, my uncle partly confided in Hans, the Eder Duck Hunter, and gave him to understand that it was his intention to continue his exploration of the volcano to the last possible limits. Hans listened calmly, and then nodded his head. To go there, or elsewhere, to bury himself in the bowels of the earth, or to travel over its summits, was all the same to him. As for me, amused and occupied by the incidents of travel, I had begun to forget the inevitable future. But now I was once more destined to realize the actual state of affairs. What was to be done? Run away? But if I really had intended to leave Professor Hardwick to his fate, I should have been at Hamburg, not at the foot of Sneffels. One idea, above all others, began to trouble me. A very terrible idea, and one calculated to shake the nerves of a man even less sensitive than myself. Let us consider the matter, I said to myself. We are going to ascend the Sneffels Mountain. Well and good. We are about to pay a visit to the very bottom of the crater. Good still. Others have done it and did not perish from that course. That, however, is not the whole matter to be considered. If a road does not really present itself by which to descend into the dark and subterraneous bowels of Mother Earth, if this thrice unhappy Sorknazm has really told the truth, we shall be most certainly lost in the midst of the labyrinth of the subterraneous galleries of the volcano. Now, we have no evidence to prove that Sneffels is really extinct. What proof have we that an eruption is not shortly about to take place? Because the monster has slept soundly since 1219, does it follow that he is never to wake? If he does wake, what is to become of us? These were questions worth thinking about, and upon them I reflected long and deeply. I could not lie down in search of sleep without dreaming of eruptions. The more I thought, the more I objected to be reduced to the state of dross and ashes. I could stand it no longer, so I determined at last to submit the whole case to my uncle in the most adroit manner possible, and under the form of some totally irreconcilable hypothesis. I sought him, I lay before him my fears, and then drew back in order to let him get his passion over at his ease. I have been thinking about the matter, he said, in the quietest tone in the world. What did he mean? 
Was he at last about to listen to the voice of reason? Did he think of suspending his projects? It was almost too much happiness to be true. I, however, made no remark. In fact, I was only too anxious not to interrupt him and allowed him to reflect at his leisure. After some moments, he spoke out. I have been thinking about the matter, he resumed. Ever since we have been at Stappy, my mind has been almost solely occupied with the grave question which has been submitted to me by yourself. For nothing would be unwiser and more inconsistent than to act with imprudence. I heartily agree with you, my dear uncle, was my somewhat hopeful rejoinder. It is now six hundred years since Sneffels has spoken, but though now reduced to a state of utter silence, he may speak again. New volcanic eruptions are always preceded by perfectly well-known phenomena. I have closely examined the inhabitants of this region. I have carefully studied the soil. I beg to tell you emphatically, my dear Harry, there will be no eruption at present. As I listened to his positive affirmations, I was stupefied and could say nothing. I see you doubt my word, said my uncle. Follow me. I obeyed mechanically. Leaving the presbytery, the professor took a road through an opening in the basaltic rock, which led far away from the sea. We were soon in open country, if we could give such a name to a place all covered with volcanic deposits. The whole land seemed crushed under the weight of enormous stones, of trap, of basalt, of granite, of lava, and of all other volcanic substances. I could see many sprouts of steam rising in the air, these white vapours, called in the Icelandic language, Reiker, come from hot water fountains and indicate by their violence the volcanic activity of the soil. Now the sight of these appeared to justify my apprehensions. I was, therefore, all the more surprised and mortified when my uncle thus addressed me. You see all this smoke, Harry, my boy? Yes, sir. Well, as long as you see them thus, you have nothing to fear from the volcano. How can that be? Be careful to remember this, continued the professor. At the approach of an eruption, these spouts of vapor redouble their activity to disappear altogether during the period of volcanic eruption, for the elastic fluids, no longer having the necessary tension 
seek refuge in the interior of the crater instead of escaping through the fissures of the earth. If, then, the steam remains in its normal or habitual state, if their energy does not increase, and if you add to this the remark that the wind is not replaced by heavy atmospheric pressure and dead calm, you may be quite sure that there is no fear of an immediate eruption. But enough, my boy. When science has set forth her fiat, it is only to hear and obey. I came back to the house quite downcast and disappointed. My uncle had completely defeated me with his scientific arguments. Nevertheless, I had still one hope, and that was, when once we were at the bottom of the crater, that it would be impossible in default of a gallery or tunnel to descend any deeper, and this despite all the learned sognosms in the world. I passed the whole of the following night with a nightmare on my chest, and, after unheard of miseries and torture, found myself in the very depths of the earth, from which I was suddenly launched into planetary space, under the form of an eruptive rock. Next day, June 23rd, Hans calmly awaited us outside the presbytery with his three companions loaded with provisions, tools, and instruments. Two iron-shod poles, two guns, and two large game bags were reserved for my uncle and myself. Hans, who was a man who never forgot even the minutest precautions had added to our baggage a large skin full of water as an addition to our gourds. This assured us water for eight days. It was nine o'clock in the morning when we were quite ready. The rector and his huge wife or servant, I never knew which, stood at the door to see us off. They appeared to be about to inflict on us the usual final kiss of the Icelanders. To our supreme astonishment, their adieu took the shape of a formidable bill, in which they even counted the use of the pastoral house. Really and truly the most abominably dirty place I ever was in. The worthy couple cheated and robbed us like a Swiss innkeeper, and made us feel, by the sum we had to pay, the splendours of their hospitality. My uncle, however, paid without bargaining. A man who had made up his mind to undertake a voyage into the interior of the earth is not a man to haggle over a few miserable rix dollars. This important matter settled, Hans gave the signal for departure, and some few moments later we had left Stappy. <laughs>